0: Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Scott Stewart, founder and managing partner of Washington DC-based developer, Capital Seniors Housing, which has a portfolio of 35 senior housing properties across the country. One big question on everyone's mind right now is how COVID-19 will ultimately affect the way senior living communities are developed and designed. At the beginning of the pandemic, Stewart worried the disease would ultimately result in a long and painful recession that ended up suppressing demand for active adult and independent living communities. He also wondered whether or not the disease's unique pressures would change the way communities themselves looked or radically alter the way they're designed. But A lot has changed in the past three months, and Stuart now thinks the current model of senior living can survive as it is today, just with a few new modifications for the post-pandemic era. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Last year, we received more than 100 entries for consideration. We're looking to celebrate more unique projects this year, including both new development and rehabs that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you think you have a project that fits that description and you want to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. And now, here's my interview with Scott Stewart, founder and managing partner of Capital Seniors Housing. Scott Stewart, thank you so much for joining me today on Transform. I wanted to start our conversation by asking, you know, COVID-19 has, it's no secret that it's disrupted the senior living industry. How have Capital Seniors Housing and its partners fared during all of the craziness
1: that's happened in the past few months? Thanks, Tim. It's good to be on the the show. So I appreciate that. You know, the answer to the question is we we fared okay, but not not great. Uh, Maybe a little bit better than what I've heard from industry colleagues. And from a number standpoint, we have 35 communities across the country, and six of them got the virus, three of them pretty badly, and three of them just got, you know, uh, one or two folks um, caught it, either a resident or a caregiver. And, you know, it quickly became the uh, 80-20 rule or the the 90-10 rule. You know, that became the, the big focus as we did everything possible to, you know, manage and then and then get rid of the virus as as soon as we as we could with our residents and with our um, and with the uh, the caregivers you know it could have been a lot worse and I think that you know this is one of those situations where with our operators you know picking good operators is this is when that really comes into play and we think that we as working collaborating with all of our operators we got ahead of this The front end and put in all the procedures, policies, and procedures as far as entry into the building, which you know quickly became nobody's getting in the building. And uh, I think by doing that, we really managed the the outcome of of what's happened with our portfolio. That said, you know we we remain diligent just on the the front end of reopening our communities. The vast majority have been shut since the uh, middle of March. And, um, you know, that's been the, the thing we've been working on first and foremost is uh, ensuring the safety of, uh, of all of our caregivers and the residents.
0: Yeah. And I know that during these hard times, a lot of senior living operators have told us how fortunate they feel to have strong capital partners or ownership groups that can help them weather the storm. So I'm also curious in what ways has Capital helped support its? operators either operationally or financially
1: well the first thing we did was you know get them all together you know kyle Henderson, who runs our he's the chief operating officer runs all of our asset management you know had a great idea to you know we're talking second or third week in, in march to after we interviewed and found out what the plan is for all of our operators and took the good ideas from one and coached up the uh you know, some of the others, or shared the ideas, had a, um, got, a got everybody on Zoomcast, a Zoom call, and um, with that, had a free exchange of um, of ideas. And that, that was a moment, I'll tell you, that, that, you know, there's a lot of silver linings with what's happened here. And that was really the first one, where it was clear to me that everybody had a mentality, all the operators, even though they compete, they're competitors in many instances, in many markets, were collaborating and sharing stories and you know as well as things were supposed to be a an hour and change and it went up to you know two hours plus of a free flow of uh of ideas with folks uh, sharing case studies asking questions of each other and we were mostly sitting back and and taking notes and listening to it so that was a wonderful event uh, to see that happen and so the free exchange of information was the first thing we did. And then secondly, it became clear that, you know, we had to uh, make sure that the caregivers, the boots on the ground, these heroes who are coming in and working butts off on long, you know, long hours, different shifts, uncertain conditions, that they were, you know, they knew that we had their backs. And to do that, you know, we, uh, quickly instituted, uh, policies where if you were out of PTO or managing it, that's okay. You know, we're going to, we're going to skip that and, and not worry about it. If you're out of sick days there too. You know, we didn't want anybody coming in who had felt the pressure to come in and wasn't feeling a hundred percent. And so we took care of that. And that quickly morphed into what we deemed as a hero pay. And uh, it was additional compensation for, uh, for folks who were coming in and working during these uh these crunch times. And, you know, the other thing we did, which was another moment for me, was we offered to take care of everybody's uh, daycare. You know, quickly schools were closing up and caregivers with uh with kids at home had a problem to solve. And we were, you know, we, we told them we told our operators that we would cover daycare, babysitting, et cetera, even from the kid next door. And uh, what played out was that the caregivers worked it out themselves, and somebody who had the first shift would take the kids from their their colleague and transfer back when you know when one came home and the other one went to work, and the coordination at the community level took care of the majority of that aspect. But you know, the whole the whole thought was to ensure the the uh, the operators of caregivers that. This is something that we're there with them and that it's sure it's going to be, you know, a hit to the expense side of things. But, you know, we just have to just have to acknowledge that and uh, move on. It's, it's interesting you flash forward to uh, to today and it's everybody's you know, realizing how the cost of, uh, of COVID at the uh, you got two things, right? You weren't letting folks in. So you weren't getting the revenue. On the side, and all the costs, uh, all the costs associated with everything I just went through, plus you know additional PPE that's out there, ballooned the, the expense side. And I saw this great coffee mug that said uh, uh, eBITDAC, which you know stood for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and COVID. So <laughs> in other words, all those all those costs were lumped into one bucket line item. And and were and, and and still are of course, and uh, everybody is just going to write that off as a, uh, you know, hopefully just write it off as a as a one-term uh, a one-time expense.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that. I, over the past couple months, I've talked with a lot of operators who basically told me that we are treading water right now, but we're not sure how long we can do this. I guess. You know, the future is not certain, but do do you get the sense that the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be to keep up this level of support? Or do you feel confident that there's a a new way of doing business that will help keep some of this stuff in the long term, should you need it, should the pandemic drag on for a little bit longer?
1: I think it's going to be a a mix of both, Tim. I think that, you know, smaller operators that aren't, you know, super well capitalized are going to feel the pinch if they haven't already. I mean, it's expensive stuff. We've got two really great capital partners with with Bain Capital out of Boston and the Carlyle Group here in DC. And they have they got on board with, you know, realizing these are very unique situations that call for a lot of leniency and understanding and gave us the tools that we needed to pass along to the operators to pass along to the caregivers. So, you know, is it going to be a hit? No question. No question. But is it a manageable one? You know, for sure it is. I think that we're in a unique and advantageous position vis-a-vis the rest of the industry because of that. And I think that people are going to get, um, it's going to really hurt the, the bottom line and, and we have to make some kind of um, financial amends uh, to compensate for that uh, go forward. I think that go forward, you know there was um, people are settling into a groove related to this. I think that the communities being open is more the norm than the, the exception today. and so obviously if you've got the, the, the top line working better that helps things. and I think that also you know the coast the cost of things like uh, hero pay, that's going down. And the cost of PPE, you know, there's a whole black market out there, right? For a while, things were ballooning in costs. And there was a lot of folks who were advantageous about uh, supplying it and jacking up the prices. I think that's fallen by the wayside. So the things are still more expensive than they were in February and January of this year. But I think it's, uh, it's, it's a fraction of what it was at the peak.
0: Yeah, I also want to talk about some of the things that Capital is working on right now. Obviously, across the board, COVID nineteen has disrupted. I think pretty much every part of the senior living industry. I wanted to hone in on construction, though. I know that you all are sort of always looking for the the next project. So, did how did COVID nineteen affect the projects that you had in development or under construction? You know, did it result in any job site delays or shutdowns or anything
1: like that? Just one, we did a, last year we opened seven communities. It was a big year for us. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But, uh, currently we have five properties that are under construction and four assist living and memory care and one independent living. And the independent living was the one that was shut down. It was in New York. It was in Plainview on Long Island and it was deemed as non-essential. So we lost uh, exactly eight weeks construction time as it um, sat, you know, dormant. And uh, people like that, you know, not at all. But uh, do we accept it? Of course we do. And I, everybody there is back at work and, and trying to make up for uh, for lost time. But the rest of the communities were deemed as essential. And a lot of the states that were building in there allowed the construction to go on. You know, and here too, you know, you got good development teams, good contractors. The burden was on them to manage the flow of construction activity. And personnel and subs, and I think that uh, they did a, a massive job during that uh, during that time.
0: Now I know that you just told me that you have two very strong capital partners, but how has COVID nineteen affected accessing capital for new projects?
1: Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. We, we we came to the realization quickly that it probably wasn't the, the best time to be floating new ideas, new concepts while well, we had Rome burning. And uh, so we focus in on putting out the fire as opposed to uh, promoting or presenting uh, new opportunities, and that's that's kind of been going on since the past, call it 110 days that we've been in this COVID period. And while we're you know contrary, we like to view ourselves as contrarian and looking at new opportunities, we're doing that on the development front because if you think about it, if we get a, a piece of ground that we like, it's going to take you. 18 months to get it entitled. You're like high barrier to entry markets. Another 18 months to, cons- to construct it, another year to get it, to get it stabilized. So we're talking three years from today from cutting the ribbon and four years from it being a, a stabilized community. So we think that the the world is going to be a, a vastly different place. But you know, for the most part, capital markets, I think, are, are shut down. Uh, it feels like they're loosening up, to me at least. But all of it's being driven by, by debt, by the banks. And the banks understandably had to turtle in because they have, they're involved in so many other sectors that are hit harder, I believe, than seniors housing. Had to wait to see how things shake out in the departments down the hall before they can start thinking about lending again. There too, I think that things have loosened up. It feels like it, at least. And that the length of this whole Shutdown or new opportunities and new development is going to be shorter than most people think. On that
0: idea of how this might affect development, a couple ideas sort of have gone through my head in the past few weeks. One is I'm curious if you think COVID 19 could dampen the demand for urban senior living. You know, it it occurs to me that people might want to avoid density, you know, just given the sort of peculiarness of this disease, or I shouldn't say peculiarness, but uh, given the fact this disease spreads very easily in, in closer areas. And then I guess the other idea that I had was, do you think that COVID-19 might make mixed-use projects harder because of the difficulties that retail hotels or other mixed-use components are having right now during COVID-19? So I can rephrase that for you, Scott. Uh, basically, do you think COVID-19 could do things like dampen demand for urban senior living? Or, and do you think it might also do things like make mixed-use projects
1: harder? Dampen it? Yes. You know, uh, close it down for good? No, absolutely not. You know, even before this began, we we are not urban developers. We we strongly believe that this is a suburban product, and the reason for that is that's where the caregivers, the adult children, live, and they're raising their own families, and they're going to want to bring. First, certainly first, is living in memory care, and that's where our focus is. Uh, we also think it's easier to build. I see the value, and I I see the attraction. To do an urban development, but it's just, it's just not for us. It's, this business is risky enough to, to build a high rise that has, you know, a lot more units in it than, uh, than, than we're comfortable with. So I don't want to bash it, but, um, you know, I think that people, you know, it's really more of a question on urban centers and, and what's going to happen with them. And while I think that for reasons of what made COVID so dangerous, you know, confined spaces, like um, elevators or subways, those are going to set the tone for how quickly uh, cities come back. But I think that once they do, people will fall back into, they'll always keep an eye on on COVID and what's going on. But I think that their lives will largely get back to uh, the way they were uh, before COVID hit. So I think that the long-term prospects are, are fine and good for both of those, for, for both centers where you live, work, play, and also uh, for, for cities. I think hotels will, you know, hotels are going to have to slowly bring their way back into things as the senior's housing, but I think that um, I think that in the long term, they'll, they'll be fine as well. So it's a tiny thing, in my opinion.
0: I'm also curious to know if you think this will affect the different kinds of senior living projects we're seeing these days. I know that capital... Believes an active adult. So I want to ask you: Do you think COVID nineteen will change the way that some of these senior housing projects are developed or designed? Do you think that you know one part of the continuum might become more popular versus another because of COVID nineteen?
1: Yes, but for 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 different reasons. One is related to the virus, and one's related to the economy. And at the beginning of this, I thought that okay, here we go. We've had a great you know eleven year run with a bull market, and this is the start of the recession. Recession's last. You know, for a long, long time, you know, typically, you know, over a year at least, and that's what's going to set the tone for active living as well as uh, independent living. And the obvious answer for that is because those are, you know, dependent on the the housing market. And I thought that the housing market may get uh, uh, hit uh, pretty badly as it usually does during a recession, but that that a lot of that has changed. I mean, the the Fed's two programs, what they just announced yesterday. You know, to, to, pump in the equivalent of $5.3 trillion into the economy. And if there is more that's needed, they've signaled, yeah, here we are. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to keep, we're going to be here and keep doing it till we get it right. And oh, by the way, interest rates are going to be hovering at zero for the, for the foreseeable future, at least for the next several years. That's huge. I mean, that, that has already had its impact on the housing market. Because if you look at um, you know interest rates, even the ten-year Treasury, it's at seventy basis points and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, eighty basis points. That's really low, and that's going to drive the housing market, which is going to drive the demand for active living and for independent living. So I think that those are those are going to be fine here, uh, just based on the Fed's pledge to pump in you know, more liquidity than ever, that's been ever seen before in, in history. So that's a positive thing. As far as other lessons to be learned with the, the design and execution, there's no question. And we're, we're jumping on those as well as uh, everybody as everybody else. And for your existing properties, you know, you're going to, every, I think the norm is going to be for folks to do an, an audit of their, their systems, their HVAC systems, get the equivalent of their air systems to be like you know, washing your hands for 20 seconds. Same thing with the airlines are obviously going to be doing the same, uh, something similar. And that's what folks are going to be doing with the existing communities, as well as I believe they're going to do what I'm viewing as you know, tornado drills. So gonna, if COVID hits again, are going to have a, a, a better game plan, not only for you know, stockpiling PPE and testing, but also having a, a plan to compartmentalize the current population between folks who are asymptomatic and who you know, test negative to folks who are you know, symptomatic but haven't tested positive and, and so on and so forth down the line. I think that new builds are going to inc- incorporate that as well. Uh, and I'd heard, you know, earlier that the basic model assist living and memory care, you know, where, you know, you have for years had smaller rooms because you wanted folks to come out and socialize um, and use the you know, communal large rooms is, uh, and that was in jeopardy just based on COVID, that meaning that people are going to want bigger rooms because they're going to spend more time there, right? And I don't... I just don't see that playing out as, as well as I thought or initially thought. My knee-jerk thought was that that was probably the way things are going to happen, but I think that the model and the mouse trap that's built currently is the one that's going to, you know, with modifications, uh, be built in the future.
0: That's very interesting, and I was fascinated to hear some of that stuff. So along the lines of this maybe changing the senior living model, it sounds like you think that it might not. I wrote a a story recently about how COVID-19 might affect models in the industry. And one thing that I've heard over and over again is that small house providers, you know, these little 8 to 16 unit, they look like fam- single family homes in a lot of instances. They, a lot of these operators, I've spoken to them and they have said, yes, this model, we feel, we have anecdotal evidence that says we feel like we're more successful with COVID-19 because of the, a lot of different reasons. So along the same lines of, you know, what senior living or what senior housing might look like in the future, what's your take on the small house trend? And, uh, and what do you think COVID-19 will do to the way, uh,
1: communities look? in the future right yeah that's interesting i appreciate your perspective on on that the small house and i think that f- certainly for active living and for independent living that that will be of interest for folks who are considering that product type will they look at the, they'll be more susceptible to looking at the small house but i think once you had started adding services that you find in assisted living and, and memory care and the folks, you know, caregivers helping with the activities of daily life, then it becomes a little more complicated. And there, you know, it's taken decades for this industry to calibrate the right mix between staffing and hours on each uh, committed to each resident, and being able to crank out a, a the industry or a reasonable margin for doing so. So, I think the higher you go up on the acu- acuity scale, the smaller uh, homes are not going to be as uh, as big of a, a factor. And as far as how things, so, you know, we're comfortable with a model for assisted living, assist living in, in memory care. Let's call it, you know, 85 units with 25% of those units dedicated towards a secure first floor memory care uh unit. And we think that that works in the right markets, allows you to get to, you know, mid-30s, Mid to high thirties on, on margins, which is what has has proven out to be the uh, the industry norms, and uh, I think that we're gonna we're gonna stick with that model, making the modifications we talked about earlier. Certainly, as far as uh, as airflow and uh, common areas, designated common areas, but I think that what we're building right now is gonna experience small modifications as opposed to a, a major overhaul.
0: Another thing that I've heard from a lot of operators right now, sort of switching topics, is this idea that the atmosphere right now in this country has led to, you know, uh, consumers sort of conflating the senior living and nursing home industries. You know, it seems like there's sort of a PR struggle right now, differentiating the two of those. And you and I have actually chatted a little bit about this over email. You, you told me that there's a, a new group that Capital is part of. I think it was it was called People of Seniors Housing or Posh. So right. tell me more about that. You know who's involved, what you all aim to do, and how all that kind of came together.
1: Well, I think that uh, again, one of the silver linings there's, there's silver linings in this whole is during this whole period that are that there for the taking. And one of them, for me at least, was you know stopping to smell the roses. So you had you know a little more time when you're walking the dog for the fourth time that day, is is communicating with uh, other folks in the industry. And I've got a great you know group of uh, folks who I you know consider friends in the industry as well as competitors. You know, and 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 everybody was uh, leveraging off of that that episode or that experience we had with the operators. It was uh, it was it signaled to me that it was, it was okay to call up, uh, you know, folks and, and, and talk about what they're seeing. And we all, this is around, uh, mid March and, you know, seniors housing makes its what I, what I thought was its national debut. It turned out to be a, a, a dubious debut. What I mean by that is you've flipped open any newspaper, the biggest ones in the nation. And there you had, it's another negative article about senior, quote unquote, seniors' housing above the fold, and it's either lazily or misinformed looping, you know, everything together, everything from active living to skilled nursing, and as we know in the industry, those are skilled nursing, and seniors' housing are very different models. One is a, a medical model; it's got, um, it's it's a medical model that involves doctors, and seniors' housing. Uh, it was community based. It's, uh, it's in the community and, and you've got, you know, folks from all over the community helping to, you know, serve it and operate it. And that was one factor. The other factor was, you know, you have the TV on in the background on mute uh, and you, you flip it around to the various news. And there was a, a quick and appropriate movement to uh, acknowledge caregivers at hospitals as heroes. No question about it. But what was being left on the cutting room floor, in my opinion, was that same kind of recognition for our caregivers who weren't wearing scrubs and in a, you know, institutional hospital type setting, but were, you know, in the hallways of seniors' housing wearing a uniform. You think about it in in, in assisted living memory care, they're the last line of defense before residents become uh, patients. And they just were not getting the recognition that I thought they should. And then the third component was, what are we going to do when this is all over, you know, to be defined? What is the impact going to be on seniors housing? You've got a lot of folks out there mm. who are adult children, you know, the oldest kids in their forties, and they're getting this perception that seniors housing is a the tinderbox waiting to explode. And uh, all those things had to be, um, had to be addressed. And so, you know, ahead of this, uh, Jerry Maguire moment, if you will. and wrote all this, these things down into a, a memo, sent it out to about 60 or so folks in the industry. And it, the reception to it was immediate and overwhelming and, and, and humbling to a certain extent. Everybody agreed with it. They were saying, yeah, this is horrible. This is a horrible thing for our industry. Let's get involved. Let's do something about this. And so that led to a program, a direct media program utilizing the majority of the utilization coming from from Facebook, because that hits our demo. That hits our demo for caregivers and for adult children. And we were putting out paid ads that, when you scroll through Facebook, that could happen. paid content. We're putting that out to those folks in all over the country. And the response there, too, was was immediate. You know, uh, Facebook's an amazing thing. And that it can really pinpoint who it wants to hit as its audience. And you can calibrate that to a level of specificity. That's what we did. And we just, you know, we were getting that message out. And with that, we had a lot of recognition coming back. People like, you know, not only sharing it, but, you know, clicking through or leaving us comments. And while it wasn't expected to be the only solution, it was, I think, something that I'd like to think, you know, moved the needle and has put us in a position where we are today that when you look at the media, you look at the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, there are very few and far between the negative articles and they've they've diligence themselves to isolate skilled nursing facilities away from seniors' housing communities. And it's great that that happened. I think that goes a long way to speeding up the the recovery from COVID, and send us back on the rails uh, for where we need to be, you know, go forward when this, uh, when this uh, period ends.
0: Well, so that's interesting. So Facebook ads, in in this case, it sounds like worked. Do you have any evidence or, or feedback or anything from folks that saw these ads that you can share with us that, you know, showed you that this was working?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you can measure the hits. We've got like a, a million and a half hits in the first month. We just got these results back last week and it's, it's measured by how many people saw it, how many people engaged with it, how many people shared it, those kinds of things. And then a smattering of commentary that comes back and some of it negative. You know, we, one of the things we accentuated in the campaign was the hero pay, you know, folks working in uncertain conditions should be paid. Extra in our um, in our view, and that's what we were doing, and it was something that was, uh, you know, I think caught on. But not everybody did that, and so you heard from some of the caregivers who weren't getting the extra pay. But the, those the negative uh, reactions were few and far between to the uh, to the positive, and it's now morphed over to to Twitter. We've got um, videos that are going up into it, and so the reaction again from the industry called like forty five. Different groups has and they're uh, they're contributing to the cause has set this up that we've got you know budget for a year long campaign to say nice things about the industry and combat those three things that I had mentioned earlier and it uh, it feels pretty good.
0: We are we're coming up to the end of our time today, but I have one last question for you. You know the capital in capital seniors housing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that refers to our nation's capital, as you all are based in Washington, D.C., so you all have been at the heart of some of the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement that's gone on over the past few weeks, so this seems like as good a time as any to talk about diversity and senior living. I'm curious to know, has this moment in history informed or changed anything that capital is doing internally with regard to diversity, and if so, how?
1: Yeah, well, on one hand, I don't think we needed the the whole movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, to to push us in that direction. I mean, you're never you're never going to be where you want to be, I think, with this. But we've taken great strides in diversity here, but we're not nearly where we want to be. And I guess that acknowledgement in itself is a is, is a good thing. But you know, the impact of what's been going on here for the past two weeks. And the protests, uh, you could see them right out. You know, they were going right outside the window here at uh, Freedom Plaza, which is a big staging area here in Washington, D.C., and then right down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the street that we're, that we're on. So we had a front row seat to what was happening there. And, you know, the passion associated with it here and not just over the nation, but all over the world and in big communities and small was pretty overwhelming. And it's, um I think, one that, you know, there's not a single person, you know, out there that didn't know that this kind of thing was going, was happening. And so the awareness factor is, is, is through the roof higher than it's ever been. But, you know, as you always say, good meetings or, or good causes are nothing unless there's actual action taken. We believe that. And we think that, you know, our here at CSH, Capital Seniors Housing. We have a we have a ways to go and uh I think that the industry has a way a way to a ways to go as well. That said, you know, that's one of the things that's attracted me to this industry and where I plan to, you know, be working in for over twenty years now and I plan to continue to dedicate the balance of my career to it is I do like the diversity that is in this in this space, not only with race but with gender. It's unlike most other real estate sectors that you have out there. And I think that makes uh, you know a strong team, a strong industry even stronger.
0: This is, I think, a good thought to end on, Scott. So I just want to thank you again for coming on Transform today. I feel like I've learned a lot. So thanks again. It was a
1: pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on Transform, Tim. I appreciate it.
0: That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The earlier bird deadline is September 30 and the final entry deadline is October 31st. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.